Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Merry Christmas! I feel like I can actually say this because I'm recording this on Christmas Eve, so it couldn't be any closer to Christmas. Um, I hope you're well. I hope you're safe. I hope you have a lovely few days planned. Um, if, uh, if nothing else, just take a moment to stop and exist if you can. Because uh, I think that's really, really important just to kind of recalibrate and uh, go, <gasps> take a breath before we start a brand new year. I just wanted to say, actually, um, we've got one more episode before the end of the year where I'll say my proper thanks. But I just wanted to say thank you, really, for your continued support, for choosing to listen to the podcast. I know that in this busy market of podcasting, uh, there is a lot of choice out there. So Ben and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. It's not taken for granted in any way, shape or form. So thank you. Um, it's a very welcome return to the podcast today to soundtrack into the fabulous Christy Wilson Cairns, who joins me to discuss her script for the excellent Netflix vehicle, The Good Nurse. Starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, The Good Nurse tells the story of Amy, who's a nurse who suspects that her co-worker is a serial killer. He goes by the name of Charles Cullen. And just before we get into the first cue, I just wanted to say that I love this conversation with Christy and we don't have many writers on the show. We have a lot of directors, writers, writer directors. But if for anybody who is starting out or wanting the encouragement to take that step into the world of screenwriting, um, whatever angle you may come in at it from, I think Christy's conversation today is utterly inspiring. Her enthusiasm for what she does and her love, pure joy for what she does is infectious. So I hope for any aspiring screenwriters out there, you find this an inspiration because I definitely did. I came away from our conversation going, right then, what am I going to write? Anyway, let's get back to The Good Nurse. Uh, it's scored by Biosphere, which is the moniker of Norwegian composer Geir Jensen, and we'll begin with a little excerpt of his musical suite from the film. This is really exciting, Christy, because we get to welcome you back to Soundtrack and congratulations on The Good Nurse. Thank you. Which is your latest um, piece of, of writing, which is, is amazing, actually. I, I was lucky enough to do a, did a Q&A with Eddie maybe about, about a month ago. It was so brilliant to get the chance to pick it apart a bit because, well, tell me how the project came to you and stuff and how you approach two things, actually, because there's a massive world of this whole kind of, you know, real crime. But then how you approach a book? The Good Nurse was the first thing I ever wrote. It was the first thing I was paid to write professionally. This is amazing. Um, so about 10 years ago, I signed with an agent in America and I got sent like a stack of books as tall as I am, which is not very tall, granted. <laughs> and um, in, the, in amongst it was The Good Nurse. And I remember kind of picking up and being like, oh, I don't know if I want to do a kind of salacious true crime story, but I thought I'll read the first chapter and then yeah. pass with authority. And the book's so good, I read the whole thing in one sitting. And I remember as I was going through it, I was like, I've got no idea how you tell this story. Because it's all the book is about Charles Cullen's life. 
yeah. serial killer's life. And in the last third you reach this woman, Amy Lochran, who's like working class, single mum, working nurse, terrible health issues, not supported by the hospital she works for. And she's going to have to work with the police to turn in this guy who she thinks is her best friend. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. Well, that's <laughs> Yeah. But I had to pitch that. And there was like, at one point, there was eight other writers pitching for it. Um, I've no idea who they are. I'm sorry. Wow. I'm sure they had good takes as well. But it, so it was like a real gauntlet. And I remember I was pitching to Darren Aronofsky and his development team. And I think I was 23 at the time. like, And I was like really green. I didn't really know what I was doing. So every time in a pitch, I was like, you guys would be crazy if you made the story any other way. Like, this is the most interesting story. Got to go in there ballsy and like, you know, confident. Gallus, as we would say. <laughs> Gallus, as my mum would call it. But yeah, and then eventually... You know, it got down to the last two, and then it was just me. And then they flew me out to New York, and they were like, "Okay, you're going to do research." And I'd like, I'd never been to New York before. I was out. I was given a company credit card. I was like, "Oh my god!" I was just basically me and the author got drunk a lot. And in the space where we got drunk, he basically introduced me to the cops, to the real Amy, um, to the nurses that he'd worked with. Oh my god! Um, I did two weeks of night shifts in a burn unit in Connecticut, <sighs> dressed as a nurse, shadowing nurses, put my hand inside people. So it had a huge kind of like run up and then we got the script together and um, we didn't have a director. And so it sort of languished for like two years. Mm -hmm. And then one day I got a phone call from the producers and they were like, oh, have you seen Tobias Lindholm's work? And I was like, yes, loved. I mean, I loved Hijacking. Yeah. I was very excited. And I know his work from uh, because he was a writer as well. Uh, and so he came on board to direct it and then he was like well, we're going to do it this way we're going to get Eddie we're going to get Jessica and I was like it is. okay no problem and then so yeah we had we had the script we had like the team and then like funding fell apart schedules came so it, then it then it disappeared again oh my god and then two years after that uh, I got a phone call from him he's like um, are you interested in taking this back up again and I was like yes because I'd met the real Amy and she's an incredible woman Yeah. and I thought oh, I'd really love people to know her story and so I, I really I got a load of help from the real Amy from really great producers great director Eddie and Jessica are phenomenal so and we did rehearsals together so we changed the script together Wow. so it was a real collaborative process so it was, it was a long term coming but worth it yeah <laughs> I think it's so interesting for people as well listen it's it's our love with this podcast, you can kind of peel back the curtain a bit mm. for people because we, you know, we go to the cinema and we watch these films, and you don't really think about the journey to that point on screen. Yeah, and also I think people assume, like with writers with scripts, you write the script and that's you go <laughs> have a nice time making the film, see you later, and that is the case sometimes. Yeah, but this clearly was not the case, and you were through that entire process. Yeah, no, it's been. I don't know what it is about me. I think it's because I carry a lot of Haribo in my pockets. <laughs> I, I am. I always get taken on to set. <laughs> Sam, Sam, genuinely, when we Chris were shooting, bringing 19, the snacks, everyone. I'm always bringing the snacks. During 1917, we'd be like shooting, and Sam would be like, "Come here," and cut, I'd like run over. I'd be like, "What do you need?" And he's like, "Got any Haribo?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, okay." Words and, and Haribo, come yes. on. Yeah, yeah, words and Haribo. That's what I should have in my business card. Sponsor me, Haribo. Um, kids and grown-ups love it, so we name check them. But yeah, so I, I think it's that. But I've been every day in 1917 every day in last night and so every day in the good nurse i've been out the whole time and it's and it's i think it's really useful to have a writer on set because everyone's doing a lot yeah. there's a lot going on and having someone there that's just like oh we should think about the story and 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 that like working close with editors working close with everyone in post-production as well it's really good fun i love it i like the collaborative nature of it does that mean that there's a there's a want in you 
to encompass more of that to direct and stuff as I mean, well maybe that's something i've really been considering i'm not naturally like i've never gone when i started out being like i think i should be a director i was really mm. interested in watching and learning and listening yeah. and i love my job right now but i think if the right project came along where it felt really personal i'd give it a go yeah why not i yeah. mean like having Sam and Edgar uh, to be as, as a sort of, you know, people coaching you and helping you and giving yeah. you advice, is, it's not a bad position to be in. Absolutely. With, it's so interesting because you were so, because of the research and this journey that you were on as well, with the the writer of the book, but then with the real Amy and stuff, did music come into any of those conversations at all? So not until Tobias came on board. And I, so, so I, I, um, I love music. Like I can't really go anywhere without listening to music. But I can't write with music. Mm-hmm. So I write in silence and I never really think about it apart from with Edgar because it was such a crucial part. Yeah. We wrote the scenes to the tempo of those songs and scenes were the length of certain songs for Last Night in Soho. But that was the first time I'd ever really figured. But when Tobias came on board and he was like, listen, Biosphere are going to do it, I instantly realised that this was not going to be the traditional composition yeah. that films are. And I think that especially when we did the final rewrite before um, you go on set and you go and shoot it, that let me be a bit more sparse with the dialogue because I thought of there's a really kind of, there's an emptiness to a lot of his music Mm -hmm. that you get to fill with emotion. I don't know much about music. I can't speak in a technical term, yeah. but I can understand it in a sort of emotional yeah. term. So for me, it was always that. And so, yes, it does have a hand in it, but in the very early stages, no. Unless unless I'm writing a very specific car chase where I'm like, yes, I'm going to have this in it. Did, did she talk about music at all in terms of, you know, as, as the pair of them being friends and spending time together and, you know, did they ever go to concerts? Did they listen to music together and all that kind of well, thing? Well, there was a lot of them driving in the car together. Yeah. And, and there was like earlier drafts of the script... Her, in real life she drove a white Jaguar like this beat up white Jaguar and I always thought cool. it was such a weird like and also because you're like it's like upper well west coast uh, east coast of America so it's like weird to just find this yeah. random white Jag and she was like and her and her daughters and her and Charlie and they would go in there and they would sing and it was like you know everything that was on the radio the day yeah. but she talked about how the radio was her main companion because she would drive three hours back and forth like to work wow so which is crazy to us because I, I can't imagine driving three hours anywhere <laughs> I mean to Scotland yes but that's about it yeah but every day and so she she had like a real relationship with that and she she used to tell me when she was driving like she would talk back to the radio because she was so sleepy she, so she would pretend that she was having conversations because wow. she'd worked like three night shifts in a yeah. row and would roll the windows down and just would be belting out at the top of her lungs but that I suppose when it came to their relationship, I think there was, we didn't really want to date it. Yeah. 
And as soon as you put that Absolutely. kind of radio in there, it sets a sort of precedent. And I, what was really interesting to me about this was, yeah, okay, it happened in the early noughties, mm -hmm. but it can still happen today. Yeah. And so we had a lot of conversations about what do we do? And that was why Biosphere was so perfect because it's sort of... Yeah. His, his music is a bit timeless. Yeah, absolutely. I feel as well like the film, you know, with everything that's going on in the world and, you know, as we're recording this, yesterday was the, the yes. nurses were striking. Yeah. And I know that this story set in, in America, but if nothing else, it really highlights the, the job. Yeah. I mean, to me, I had no idea how manual nursing was. Because, yeah. like, you have this sort of notion of, like, them dabbing your brow when you've got a fever and you're like, oh, yeah. But when they actually were like, no, you're going to help me shift this man so that we can clean behind him. Yeah. Like, we need to change these sheets. And some of these people, I mean, even just shifting a, a normal size body is hard. Like, yeah. when it's not kind of like conscious, when it's not working. And then counting the fact that in America, they're usually much larger, as, as we are getting over here now yeah. as well. And then also when they're in pain, they fight you because they don't know. No, yeah. And so it's like, you know, nurses with black eyes. It's like a regular thing. Wow. And it's crazy to me. That that's just not more of an education. Also, I really believe and call this the socialist in me that the way that the healthcare system's built in America, like profits ahead of patients, yeah. allowed Charles Cullen to kill so many people yeah. for such a long time. And if we're not careful, profits will be more important than patients in the NHS. Absolutely. Well, I almost feel like he's almost not the villain in it. No. In a way, like mm. that woman who, yeah, yeah, plays the, and she's a real person, isn't she? And she's now like the head of yeah it's not it's it's crazy how I, i'm not allowed to say too yeah, much because okay. they sue me <laughs> okay. um they're very angry the hospitals apparently <laughs> allegedly but um and charles graber she'd be sorry really not i know angry, you, think, you think they would be a bit embarrassed <laughs> yeah. like oops yeah but um in charles graber's book which is phenomenal yeah he lists where everyone kind of went to where they all end up and it's really alarming it's really yeah. alarming how people get promoted after what they've done but yeah, my big thing, what really interested me about this was it's a movie where you catch the serial killer, but the villain, the big villain is still at large and it's yeah. still at large today. Yeah. And that felt, it felt like a really good thing to be involved in. It's so nuts to think as well that if you work in that system, you're not covered for that system. Is that not just the weirdest? It's, it's I couldn't get, because like when I was watching the film and I was kind of like, hold on, she's a nurse and she's not... Uh. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah, she told me, you know that scene where she goes and she has to split her medical bill on two credit cards? I mean, she was like, she was like, that was like a once a month thing. And I was like, could you imagine? Oh my and God. she's like, and that's why she'd left it longer than she should have left it. Because she, you know, yeah. like it, all these problems. And it's the same all over America. 
But it was like the stuff I found out is extra to have the sirens on in an ambulance. Uh-huh. What? <laughs> Your face is the face everyone makes when I drop that. But yeah, it was it was like five hundred dollars extra if you want. They ask you if you're conscious. They ask you if you want the sirens on. It's going to cost you more. Like you're on a theme park. <laughs> That's insane. Do you want the picture as well? <laughs> Do you want a digital copy or an actual <laughs> physical copy? And we're laughing, but it's just because it's so Terrifying. absurd. Yeah. Oh my god! I weirdly just had a flashback of that. I can't even remember what it's called now. But there was when I was growing up, there was this really probably like really unhealthy to watch now. But there was a comedy, a film about ambulance drivers in the states that I think either I Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy uh-huh. was in, and it was about. The, you know, that kind of whole depot of where the ambulances get called out from and stuff like that. I can't remember oh what it's God. called. It's like the equivalent of like police academy, but yeah, ambulance yeah. kind of things. And I bet you if you looked back on that now in the kind of ridicule of what they were highlighting, it's probably actually, this is still going on. Yeah. No, I'm sure, I'm sure it's still awful. <laughs> Man. It's interesting as well how much research you do, you know, in yeah. terms of really putting yourself in those situations. And I, I imagine that with each project, the opportunity for that is very different. You know, I mean, 1917, there was obviously research you could do, but to a point. I yeah. Guess. Well, I mean, 1917, a lot of it was the Imperial War Museum. A lot of it was like quite bookish research. But then I, I walked the route the boys take in France. I took my mum. <laughs> Because she was, she like was like, oh, you can't go on your own. And I was writing it as I was kind of walking. So we were going like every two days, we were going to a different like hotel as we were moving across. Oh, and wow. and as you walk, you just see graveyard after graveyard after graveyard. And the thing that that gave me that none of the books really had was, I had thought of the men that went to war as men because you know when you learn about it at school, they're older than you. Yeah. And then I mean, I would have been twenty eight at the time that I was doing this, and I was there was no one older than me in any of those graveyards. And I w- there was like 16 year olds. And I just remember like sort of dragging my mum across this and her just weeping the whole way. And I was like, we've got to get through this. But it was really like, I'm laughing, but it was a really profound moment where you understand like, oh no, this isn't, a- this has to be better. Like this has to like be personal. It has to really grow. It has to- you have to understand this cost. Mm. So that was, for that, was really helpful. Were you listening to music on that walk? I did, yeah. I listen to a lot of music. I listen to a lot of music to try and cheer myself up. I am counteract what you're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, and it was a lot of soul wax, <laughs> which nice. I, I absolutely love. I, I'm like a <laughs> sub club techno um, kind of fan, so I listen to a lot of that. And then, so my gran used to sing to me. So when I grew up, we didn't have a lot of music in my house. My grandfather was deaf. My mum's profoundly deaf. Oh, wow. So I didn't have like a stereo and everything until I was like 13. Like it was just sort of like not really a factor. But my gran used to play these old records and they were always like um, either ABBA or like opera. Okay. And so my gran used to sing Madam Butterfly all the time. Oh. She used to like hum along in the kitchen. To, and so a lot of the times, and it makes me incredibly sad, Madam Butterfly, because it's, it's yeah. very sad music. So a lot of the times, like, I would listen to that to also just like expunge the sadness, to yeah. just like cry it out. But it was like the music in that became either like something like a balm to really like hold you whilst you were writing it, because it's so sad. It's so grim. It's so unrelentingly yeah. like awful what happened to these men and women and all of that section of the world or it would become like the thing that you needed to just get it out so that mm. then so that then you could sit down and write because there would be times where I'd be writing where I would just be like just crying yeah and I'd be like this is great <laughs> it's working but also like yeah help but with Last Night in Soho it was totally different because with Last Night in Soho Edgar gave me the music in advance like I had the playlist when I sat down to write, to write it. it so I would 
we would write in Soho, as you do, and I would cycle in playing the songs, like there's a ghost in my house and everything like that, which is like <laughs> such a banger. Or even just last night in Soho, yeah. and I would write and I would come and listen to that and I would feel really excited and really alive and it would just it would like G me up for the day every day. And even we would we would listen to the music at lunchtime we'd got a bit, you know. Yeah. The slump happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And be like, let's let's bang on Puppet on a string. <laughs> yeah. Just like and eventually we we had there was one we'd played Puppet on a string so many times in the office we were in that people came to complain. <laughs> and it wasn't that they were complaining it was too loud, but they were like, just play something yeah. else. Please no more Sandy <laughs> Show. Thanks. Totally. Yeah. Research for last night in Soho, I had sort of lived a lot of it because I know what it's like to be a young woman in a sort of industry yeah. where you're sort of preyed upon. I lived in Soho. I lived above a strip club opposite where we're recording this right now, and I worked in the Tukin. So a lot of that was like my own life. So it didn't require a huge amount of research, although we had a really incredible like book made. It was about kind of women in the sixties, yeah, in here in particular, yeah. And then with Good Nurse, it was like long, unrelenting working night shifts in a hospital really sad and then listening to a lot of um God, i'm trying to think I, I i was listening to a lot of elliot smith at the time to cry a lot um and then because i would i would like it was um in connecticut the hostel i was working at and you would start at seven o'clock at night and you'd finish at seven o'clock in the morning wow. and it was january it was so cold and i was driving this like knackered rental car where you had to like you know, you couldn't plug your phone in directly, so you had to like tune the radio right. to your yeah, phone yeah, thing. Yeah. I was like, it was like really, it was how long ago it was, and I was like just dying for anything fun. And I would listen to like just like stupid songs that you know you would play with your friends when you were on holiday to take you there. My God, a lot of that, and a lot of the um, Charlie's Angels soundtrack. <laughs> oh wow, the 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 um, um, Drew Barrymore, the, Lucy, oh, amazing. Yes, was that like um, Destiny's Child and yeah, stuff like Destiny's that? Destiny's Child. Yeah, yeah. The Prodigy. Oh wow! Like it was, it was like that was like the, the like a real formative oh, soundtrack of my back. youth. Yeah, oh, yeah, my yeah. God. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good.
before you mentioned Madam Butterfly, did you see White Lotus? Have you been up to speed on White I'm Lotus? I'm not up to speed on White Lotus because I've, I've basically been a hermit writing for the last week. But now, now I'm free and okay. I'll be watching White Lotus. There's a Madam Butterfly. Oh no! I have to prepare moment. myself for that. You were really well in, like, in in uh, in that. It's it's extraordinary. Imagine me just sobbing somewhere. Just Ooh. yeah. Sorry. I, I, yeah. No, it's maybe, maybe it's after Christmas. Yeah. Wait. I'll wait. I'll do Boxing Day <laughs> when I'm be depressed anyway. Oh no! Wait. Hang on. Um, New Year's Day. That's the best one, isn't it? <laughs> That's so crazy. It's amazing because the way that music works in film, I think, is so. You know, I love that every every time I get to speak to someone about it for this podcast, it's like I I just you know I, I love the stories and I love learning more. But that those two things that they are where there's those score moments. But like mm. you say with that with the Charlie's Angels, it's that collection of songs, and it's the choice of putting things together and what it creates and the memories that it creates. You know, in terms of like I want to feel this way, so I'm yeah. going to play that. It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? No, it's it's really I I get very angry because musicians can do with a chord what it usually takes me a whole scene to do <laughs> and I'm very jealous I'm not in any way musically gifted like I'm the exact opposite I remember my mum was like trying out music lessons and stuff on me <laughs> and like every single one of them was like she's not got it like third third one in they were like we could take your money but like honestly kids tone deaf <laughs> my mum was like tracks um, even drums like even drums I don't have rhythm I can't dance I'm a terrible dancer as well so it's like no one's nothing. a terrible dancer oh no you wait till you see I'll do it for you right now I'm not embarrassed about it but like I've seen videos of me dancing and I'm like oh her oh it's a shame for her but yeah no I feel I feel that what they can achieve and how they can achieve it is magic it is alchemy mm. and the ability to do that I mean I always remember in 1917 there's a particular part of the script that I've loved you always have one bit of the script you're just like oh my god and as a writer you're like they'll never pull this off they'll never pull this off as good as I've written it. oh I like yeah, you testing always, them that's yeah, yeah. brilliant and I say that to them I've, I said that to I mean I've said that to Roger Deakins I was like this can't be as good, good as I've imagined it and then yeah, I see it and I'm like shit okay <laughs> but there's there's a bit in 1917 where George McKay's character gets shot in the head. The helmet comes off and, you, and then he wakes up. Yeah. And it's like him walking down. It's night time and he comes down and they're like, the flares burst over the village. And um, and it's this ruined village. And I remember when I wrote it, I was like, oh my God, like, I can't wait to see what Sam, what Roger, what they all do with this. And there was a temporary, so we shot it and I was like, slayed. And um, there was a temporary music track on it, which Tom was another of Thomas Newman's yeah. tracks, but they'd just thrown it on it when we were watching it in the dailies. And I was like, oh, my God. And I remember saying to Sam, I was like, you can't top this music. I was like, you just like, and he was like, I think we'll license it. Like, there's no way you can do better. Mm. And then maybe about five days later, Sam phoned me and he was like, you need to come and see this. Like, he's he's done it. And I remember, and it's one of my, it's called The Night Window. And I remember kind of watching it and just being like, oh, my fucking God. Yeah. And it's, it's a part in the movie that I watch where I forget I've written the movie. Like I forget that I that I know what's coming. Yeah, and that's don't get me wrong. That's Roger. That's Sam. That's George. That's the incredible team. But it's it's mostly Thomas Newman. It's mostly that alchemy, that magic. Wow, that's incredible. That's I mean, it's the magic of cinema, I hate, isn't it? I hate them that they're that they're so special <laughs> that they can do this. Damn you, musicians! But they needed your like, <laughs> your words to be able to do yes. it for the inspiration. Yes, sure.
there's something about like I just watched um, All Quiet on the Western Front oh, yeah. um, and when you were talking about that that notion of how young and it's so interesting because we never really get to see the other side no but this film does and just the kind of you know and I think now more than ever as well we kind of need reminding of kind of you know the tragedies of war and how unnecessary it is and, and I think that to be able to do that through such a beautiful art form both with that film and even just that you know that scene that you talk about mm-hmm. and and how brilliant 1917 was. It's something that I think needs to be kept being told in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think I'm really interested in World War II, particularly women in World War II, because I think those stories are very rarely told. And yeah. if they're told, they're they're not told through a female gaze ever, yeah. which is frustrating because a lot of the women in World War II were James Bond and you've never heard of them. Well, like Margot Robbie's character in Amsterdam yeah, as well, I exactly. thought was a great example. Exactly. Of it's kind of, I just thought that was so fascinating and and, he, and getting the chance to speak to David about her and how much yeah. research he did into the women who were yeah. she was based on is like, God, she was real. Yeah. No, I mean, it's unbelievable. And, it, and, and it's largely absent. Like, it's largely absent, which is something that I'm always, like, kicking around. But there's there's always a sort of accusation of, like, we've got enough war movies. But we're still going to war, so mm-hmm. we've clearly not. Yeah. And and I think, see when, see, when we don't fight anymore, like, see when that's not an option, when it's not... Yeah. It's not even it shouldn't even be a last resort essentially but it is and it has to be because of the way we are but like I think see when we've got there then we've had enough war movies yeah like then okay call it a day we fixed it <laughs> yeah yeah but until then yeah keep them coming yeah it's amazing watching what you've written as well because it's just it's such a vast <laughs> you know in terms of the kind of the scale of things as well and the good nurse and healing about the amount of work that went into it but it's it's such a it's such a personal performance and stuff it's it's quiet and it's it's kind of you know it's it's close and that's amazing to kind of see the diversity of what you're able to do how do you know and how do you make the choices and what what's going to be next or what you want to do next I think like it's it's I mean for so much of your career you're just like oh my god I'm working (laughs) (laughs) haha like (laughs) and then there's a while where you're like oh my god they're paying me well and now and then I've been very lucky in the last few years where it's like now you get to choose so I set up my own production company Partly because I wanted to have more control, but partly also there's stuff I want to see that I shouldn't write. There's stuff about like the black female experience. Yeah. There's stuff about that that I'm like, why why is no one making this? Why can't I watch it? And I know I shouldn't write it. I don't have that point of view. It's not it's not yeah. I wouldn't do it justice. Mm-hmm. And so it's like setting up a company to allow that kind of thing to happen is yeah. really exciting. So that happens as as alongside my stuff. And it's like you've got some kind of small amount of power how do you throw it around yeah how you throw it around so you can so that you can see other worlds yeah that aren't traditionally told so there's that but i think when it comes to me choosing stuff a lot of it's who i'm working with because mm-hmm. i i'm really lucky i've had like fantastic relationships with directors and to, like work with them again and finding new directors that are like that i will always make a list i'm like oh i'd love to see i'd love to see I if i can that. get in a room with them yeah and i give it to my agents and they're like they're going to be in town and i'm like let me get drunk with them <laughs> i can sell myself <laughs> I, I won't promise. dance but i'll get drunk I won't dance, <laughs> but they'll be drunk enough that it won't matter at that point um but a lot of it a lot of it's also have this rule you shouldn't write a movie that you wouldn't watch hungover on a sunday morning which i know is, is a strange rule but i believe that that's the truest version of you or it's the truest version of me anyway. I'm there with like, you. What you want to watch then is kind of like what soothes you, what what engages you and what takes you out of yourself. So if, if I'm offered stuff, I usually think, oh, would I want to 
do I want to see this? Mm-hmm. Do I want to watch it then? And and obviously there has to be a kind of degree of creativity in it. You want to you want to be like, okay, what muscle can I flex? Yeah. What can I do now? What can I do that's really different? But a lot of it's just like, what does this do in the world? Does it what does it say? Yeah. Does it make someone's life a bit better? Because movies were such a like movies saved me. Yeah. Like I grew up watching film and TV, like I had a really happy childhood, but both my grandparents got Alzheimer's when I was 13 and my mum and I cared for them on our own. And so like, and movies were like total escapism. It was the only chance that we all got away. Like what kind of thing? I mean, do you know, a lot of it was like Police Academy. (laughs) I I used to go to Global Video in Shawlands and I rented Police Academy so much that they gave me the VHS of Police Academy. I still remember my membership number, 739, Global Video. And I would go in and like literally every day after school, and like pick up, you know, they do like three for two, pick up three for two, take it back the next day and just like constantly on repeat. And and it was a lot of it was like airplane, Mel Brooks, mm-hmm. like really like daft, like history of the world. I could quote verbatim. I could do yeah. it right now. I won't. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, and then other things, I suppose, and I get laughed at a lot for this because you should say, oh, it was the German new wave and um, uh, 400 blows and, and that spoke to my soul. But actually, the first Charlie's Angels movies made me want to work in film or be a Charlie's Angel. And yeah. I did not have the language skills <laughs> to be a Charlie's Angel. So I ended up in film. And, and so like movies like that and like Underworld, I would go and watch Underworld with my mum and we would come out the cinema like as if we were vampires. Like you would feel... And mm-hmm. to see women in positions of power was kind of rare. Yeah. Like to see female superheroes wasn't really that yeah. common when I was younger. And so I guess a lot of what I want to do now is like not necessarily female superheroes, but superhuman women. Yeah. That you should know their stories about. But movies, movies essentially taught me how to live. They taught me how to like exist and they and they were sort of like meditative mm-hmm. in that way as well. I kind of what I want to make is yeah, you want to make things that are important, but you want to make something that someone wants to watch forty times. Yeah. So the global video, RIP, give them it. <laughs> I used to have this weird thing I used to do at night. I had this wee TV and a VHS player in my bedroom that my dad had got like second hand. And I had a VHS copy of the Blues Brothers. Uh-huh. And I used to every night from about the age of thirteen, I'd put it on and I'd go to sleep with it on. Yeah. My mum or dad would have to come and switch the telly off every night sort of thing. It's weird, but I, I absolutely hear that kind of, what you're saying about it being transportative and just kind of taking you out yourself and, and taking you to taking you to a bigger world. Yeah. Well, because, you know, like I grew up in the south side of Glasgow. It wasn't a big world. Yeah. And also I, I was very privileged. Like, you know, I, I went to a private school and everything like that. I had like the best possible start you could get, but I had that because my grandparents worked really hard, and mm-hmm. I was like partly a scholarship kid, and so you would read books and you would you would hear about this bigger yeah. world, but it was like, could you get there? Mm-hmm. But films could take you there. I mean, I remember watching Titanic. My mum took me out of school to watch Titanic. <laughs> yes, and I was like, I might have I, done that with white. It's, it's, do you know what? A lot of my like most kind of favourite memories with films in the cinema as my mum. Like turning up at school at lunchtime, being like, "Oh, there's, there's, um, I've got to take her. There's been a bereavement <laughs> or an accident or something," <laughs> and then going and seeing like just terrible films a lot of the time, like a lot, a lot, <laughs> a lot of really bad movies, which I was about to. But you need to see own. the bad with the good. That's you the do, thing. Yeah, yeah, you do. And then like these epic blockbusters. Like I remember, she found at one time Jurassic World, uh, Jurassic Park was being played again at the GFT <sighs> out of school. <laughs> Yeah. She's like, you got to see it in the big screen. Big screen, yeah. yeah. Totally. She's like, you have to, you have to. And it was, it was so important to have 
the other world showing to you and also other people's life experiences. Yeah. I mean, I met very few people outside my bubble in Glasgow. And so like to watch If, to watch those kind of yeah. films, you'd be like, wow, okay, that's what yeah. it's like. Yeah, absolutely. Really profound. Yeah. Um, you said that you came in and you were like proper skipping your step because you just finished the script, which I'm assuming you can't tell us what it is or what it's about. I can tell you after the, okay, they well, stop, yeah, after, after the <laughs> yeah, recording after, stops. After recording, so yeah, you need to wait, wait for the next episode of yes. Christy to find out what it is. How does it work? Can you, can you only, do you work on one thing at a time or can you have kind of plates no. spinning? No, I, I think I've got quite a strange brain and um, I like to do three projects at a time. I like how you laugh there. You're like, yeah, you do. <laughs> no, my, I, I'm, I, yeah, my radio producer, my last radio producer uh-huh. I had, Mick, was just kind of like, I think you're definitely on the spectrum because I've never seen anybody be able yeah. to function a, a radio desk and screens in as many ways as you can. I, I find it incredibly soothing for mm. my brain to be at capacity. If it's my brain's not at capacity, like it'll act out. Yeah. I found that I've got ADHD during the pandemic. Like literally, I was like, "Oh, okay, that that does track." And they yeah. were like, "You probably like had this at school and weren't doing well." And I was like, "I did very well at school, thank you very much." <laughs> yeah. Do you want to see my my standard grades? Yeah. Um, but no, but and and it was quite, I suppose, enlightening to find that out. But yeah. also, it didn't change anything because yeah. I I already knew that my brain didn't work right. But I like to have them in different stages, so I'll have something that I'm researching. Mm-hmm. Which actually, sometimes it's two or three things that I'm researching until I really settle on it. And then I'll have something that's like first draft stage. Yeah. And then I'll have something that's on like, it's on its final push. It's, you know, it's uh, a few months out from production. It needs X, Y, and Z, or it's going to the actors. It's, it's, it's something that's essentially ready. And I go between the three of them at random Amazing. until until a deadline looms and then I'm like oh my god and then I'm awake for like 48 hours just <laughs> <laughs> trying to spell check something well you've hit a deadline so we've got another two things still with the go then I take yeah, it yeah yeah no I do I'm really I, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing I'm so excited about and I will tell you about it genuinely <laughs> um and like one of the music's a huge piece of it as well that's a tv series which is it's something that it's with apple and if it goes yeah i think it'll be really fun it'll be really fun to do it differently and what I, my plan with that is actually to bring the composer into the writer's room because i'm like no one's ever done that and it's crazy to me because it's like if we bring them in there at this stage one of the main characters in it is a musician and uses music to essentially understand the world you need that understanding so it's like have that i don't have to write so much dialogue in. yeah they could just do it <laughs> um and it's exciting you kind of start to as you produce you start to go who yeah. what composers i like who do i love what musicians yeah. do i love and it's really nice to sort of start to reach out and start to feel like, oh, hi. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, please come back for another visit then when you I'll can talk about it. Anytime you want. Perfect. Anytime you want. Next Christmas. Well, bef- next Christmas or maybe before? Who knows? Oh, I don't know. They take a while. I <laughs> hope it's not 10 years again. That yeah. was long. Please God, like, no. oh. um, listen, thank you for your time. It's thank so you. fascinating and just lovely to kind of celebrate all this brilliant work that you've done and, and everything that's to come as well. Thanks, Christy, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
From the Good Nurse, that's an extract from Biosphere's score rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fabulous Christy Wilson-Cairns. Huge thanks to Christy for taking me on uh, for a second time on Soundtrack and Merry Christmas to you, my darling. The Good Nurse is available to watch now on Netflix and you can hear her discussing One Night in Soho with Edgar Wright by heading to edithbowman.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack in UK and please feel free to send me an email about anything you like to info at edithbowman.com. Um, just to say, actually, uh, at the start of the year, we have a very exciting opportunity for you to attend an exclusive screening of The Fablemans, which is the brand new film from Steven Spielberg that stars Paul Dano, Michelle Williams, Seth Rogen and many, many more. Uh, So we have a competition to give away a pair of tickets to that that we're going to run just at the start of the year. So make sure you stay tuned and look out for that. And I'll be running some stuff on socials as well. So if you aren't following us already, make sure you are on Instagram and Twitter at Soundtracking UK. Next up... Ah, oh, so excited to have them back. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross return to Soundtrack and to discuss their score for Empire of Light, directed by the aforementioned Sam Mendes, and also their fabulous score for Bones and All with Luca Guadagnino. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, Merry Christmas. <laughs> 